Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant doctor and psychiatrist. I'm based in private practice in Harley Street in London in the United Kingdom. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Chris Bouch. Chris Bouch is a full professor and a university research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics at the University of Waterloo. We got his PhD from the University of Warwick. His research group develops mathematical and computational models of the dynamics of natural systems, such as ecosystems or infectious diseases. The particular emphasis on understanding how human systems and natural systems interact with one another and how this understanding can be used to improve ecosystem health and human health. So, Chris, many thanks for joining us today. I want to start by asking you a little bit about a kind of buzz term that's around at the moment, which is mathematical modeling of infectious diseases. We're obviously in the middle of a pandemic, and we read in the newspapers every day about this notion that this disease is being mathematically modeled. And a lot of government policy seems to be based on that. So tell us a bit about what is or what are mathematical models of infectious diseases and their spread. Well, thanks, Raj. Good question. So a mathematical model of infection spread is not so different from uh, a model from physics that might predict how a cannonball travel, travels uh, across a field. The basic idea is that you're writing down a set of equations that represents the trajectory of the transmission in the population and how it might respond to interventions like physical distancing uh, or vaccines. And so we create these mathematical equations based on our best knowledge of the epidemiology we use input parameters uh, based on our, our estimates of how it spreads and how long people remain ill, etc. And then we try to create projections of how many cases we'll see in the future for different scenarios uh, about, uh, for example, how many people will be doing physical distancing. Now, when you're constructing these models, um, what are the kind of input inputs you put into the model. Are, are there things that you're making assumptions over? Um, is it histo historical, what, how other diseases spread? I'm very interested in, in how you model something which is a new disease, because uh, COVID-19 seems to be a new disease. So how, how come so early on when we heard about it, people were talking about mathematically modeling this new disease? Mm -hmm. Well, in practice, our estimates uh, about the characteristics of the virus evolve over time. So initially, you might use proxies from similar viruses to uh, fix your model inputs. For example, some of the earliest models use the duration of infection from SARS uh, and the R0 from SARS. Uh, uh, but as time goes on, you, you are hopefully able to acquire data specific to COVID and you can thereby refine your estimates. Uh, now in proper modeling practice, you always report on the sensitivity of your predictions to your uncertainties. So even if you are using characteristics from SARS, you should uh, incorporate confidence intervals that, that tell you how confident you are on your outputs based on how uncertain you are about the inputs. Uh, and over time, as, uh, as you gain more data, those confidence intervals should, should narrow as you get more data that's specific to COVID. So I think the model accuracy tends to improve over time. Uh, but initially, we, we, we do have to issue caveats saying, well, you know, this is our best guess, but it could be lower or higher because we're, we're still waiting for data on, on uh, for example, the how, how transmissible the infection is. So in other words, there's a there's a range of possible outcomes from the model. And and um, when people are reporting what the model predicts, they should be predicting a range. Is that right? Rather than just a particular number. Exactly. A good model will predict both a best guess and a range of, of output values that represent set uncertainty. 
Um, it seems as though there's some controversy over the modelling that drove government policy here in the United Kingdom. It, it sounds as though the model made a, a, a kind of doomsday scenario prediction about hundreds of thousands of people dying and the government responded. And now when although a large number of people have died, it's not hundreds of thousands. People are being critical of that model um, without going into too much details because because that's not available to us any, any thoughts about that 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 models um can can appear to be wrong and, and how can that be or is it or is it because the model makes a prediction and then people react to the model um the model wasn't wrong it's just that the behavior in response to the model changes the outcome i think your latter point captures it uh, more accurately. So each model needs to make assumptions about how people will will behave. Uh, and certainly in the case of some of the US models, and I, I think this was also true in the UK, um, uh, the assumptions about how much people would physically distance, well, they were highly variable. We didn't really know how much people would physically distance. Uh, so for example, if you assume no physical distancing, then I think 100,000 deaths is probably on the lower end for, for a country like the UK. Uh, um, so uh, I don't think the model was wrong, but rather there were uh, certain assumptions that one can make about how much physical distancing will occur. We have no way of, of knowing ahead of time uh, which one of those will actually pan out. So the way to report models is to say, well, you know, this is what happens if no one physically distances. This is what happens if half of us do. Uh, this is what happens if we close schools and workplaces, etc. And with a slate of options, a policymaker can say, okay, we're going to close schools or, or, or we're going to try to test aggressively or we're, we're going to use a combination. And this is how they get used. Uh, so um, my, my sense about a lot of the models is that perhaps the results were, were, were taken out of context uh, and um, some of the projections assumed uh, um, human behavioral scenarios which didn't uh, unfold in practice. So in other words, if people did a lockdown and then were surprised by how effective the lockdown was, i.e. people obeyed it much more than than maybe people had predicted it was going to be obeyed, then it changes the outcome. Is, is that right? Exactly. A, a model can be a, a kind of a victim of its own success in that in that respect. The, uh, the point is often to present a counterfactual, something that, that you hope won't happen uh, in the effort to try to ensure, stimulate action and ensure that, that people will take this seriously. Now, um, when um, people are modeling, I mean, you're, you're in Canada, there'll be other people who do what you do are modeling in the UK or in South Korea. Do all these different academic modelers, because they seem to, to be in universities mostly, do they collaborate with each other? Do they talk to each other? Or are they modeling in isolation? And, and are the computer models similar or are they completely different depending on which country you're in? How much consensus is there in the academic world over modeling? There is a lot of variety in the types of models that are used uh, and in terms of who's doing it there are a lot of uh, new modelers who are working on COVID for the first time. Uh, I think the variation in models is it, it has less to do with country and more to do with uh, academic background. Um, there is certainly a lot of communication between modelers. Some prefer work alone but many of them are collaborating. My experience has been that the amount of sharing of data and and ideas uh, during the current pandemic is really fantastic. Uh, modelers are very quick to respond to your queries, to share data, and that's been uh, one of the good things about about working on the problem is is, is that people are really uh, trying to collaborate as much as they can to, to get some to get some answers out.
Do, do all the people who end up doing what you do in your field come from the same academic backgrounds? Because I was quite surprised when I was reading your papers as to how mathematical the whole thing is. It seems to be really, I got the feeling from reading all these equations, that you really have to have a background in pure mathematics. And I, and I would have thought that ending up in epidemiology would be an unusual place for a pure mathematician to end up. And any, any, any comments about the, the different backgrounds people have when they arrive in this field? Exactly. It's, it's very diverse. And in terms of the mathematics, the, the, the right training comes if you have a background in physics or engineering or uh, applied mathematics or, or maybe pure mathematics. Uh, but there are some types of models that are more algorithmic based on computer code. Those are called agent-based models. And they're strictly defined in terms of rules that these agents obey as they move around in your virtual computer program. And for that type of model, a computer science background might be, might be more relevant. So uh, there are different types of models, and some of them require less mathematical training than others. So is there a conflict or, or controversy within the field because people who have a background in, in mathematics may argue or differ in their, in their position than, let's say, people who have a background in the behavioral sciences or people who have a background in the computer sciences? Is, it, is there a conflict in the field that arises out of different perspectives from different backgrounds, or that doesn't really happen? I don't think the fault lines fall along the, the field of training so much. Uh, I think there are some people who are more interested in understanding the science of the transmission and, and why the disease transmits the way it does. And there are others who are interested in the policy implications. Uh, but in my experience, uh, the fault lines usually aren't clearly defined by people's background. Okay. so. Um... One of the things that, that that struck me from reading your papers was this background in physics, which I found very, very strange that sometimes um, physics is supplied the beginning of of epidemiological or mathematical modeling of disease. So one of the um, uh, models comes from the notion of particles colliding with each other as as the notion of the virus in a way colliding with an individual. Could you tell us a bit about that, that background? That's a great story. So, so that idea started in the early 20th century uh, when two researchers decided to try to model infection transmission as a, a kind of chemical reaction. And they postulated that, well, we can perhaps treat people as not so different from hydrogen and oxygen atoms that are moving around in some space. And if they happen to collide, they form something new like water, except in this case, it's a new infection. And so those researchers directly applied the mathematics of this chemical process, uh, chemical physics actually, uh, to infection spread. And much of our theory of epidemiology is based on this, this postulate. Now, of course, in the face of it, it's, it's a silly idea. Uh, we're not molecules. Uh, we don't move around randomly. Uh, but it's not a bad approximation that works pretty well, it, it, especially in very densely populated cities like, uh, for example, London or, or Toronto. Um, in that case, this, this, this useful approximation, even though it abstracts a lot of real-world detail, it can actually predict epidemic curves, the trajectory of epidemics over time, pretty well for many infections. But they don't take into account the notion that people are not particles and people make decisions and people are influenced by other people's decisions. So when you do a lockdown and tell everyone to stay indoors, if they all decide to stay indoors, um, there's a sense in which you've got to take into account behavior and, and belief systems. Is that not right? And d does the modeling try to do that? 
Some modeling does. Actually, that's a major focus of my research program. I'm, I'm trying to model not only the infection spread, but also the spread of opinions and beliefs through populations and how they interact. And I think that's especially important for COVID because so much of the control has hinged upon widespread public adoption of these interventions. Uh, so, of course, I'm not the only person doing that. There are many modelers who are trying to incorporate behavior to different degrees into their models. Uh, and one can do that in very simple ways. For example, uh, at, at some time point in the model, they might say, well, we're going to reduce the transmission rate to capture the effects of physical distancing here. Or they might do it in more sophisticated ways that invoke concepts from psychology and sociology and put those into the equations, which is the approach that I tend to take. So uh, the models have come a long way since that original physics-based idea in the, in the early 20th century. Uh, and they're often trying to get at this exactly this issue of, of how do events like uh, emergency rules change the transmission. Now, the other thing I found fascinating about reading your papers is actually when you delve into it, the thing is incredibly complicated. Um, so just to pick out a couple of examples, um, one of the issues that you mentioned in one of your papers is the definition of what something called the latent period, defined as the time from infection to the time when a host is able to transmit the pathogen to another host. The incubation period, defined as the time from infection to the onset of disease. And the infectious period, defined as the period from the end of the pre-infectious period until the time when a host is no longer able to transmit the infection. So these different um, terms and different numbers can have a big impact on the model. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're grouped into you know, one group, which is more about the disease and the symptoms. So that's incubation period and duration of illness. And the other group is more about the transmission. That's a latent period and the infectious period. And let's look at some other terms, the infectivity, virulence, and pathogenicity. Could you say a little bit about those terms? So virulence is closely related to pathogenicity. Those are, those are both the idea of how harmful is the virus to its host. Uh, so a highly virulent or, or pathogenic virus uh, will cause a lot of damage to its host. Uh, pathogenicity has more of a, a kind of a medical uh, implication to it. So there you're talking about specific pathologies that can emerge from a virus. Virulence is more this general concept that a virus by replicating inside its host can hurt it. Um, so it, when, when a virus uh, evolves, it has to strike a balance. If it's too virulent, too pathogenic, it knocks out the host uh, and, and puts them in bed or in the hospital before they have much of a chance to transmit to others. They just get sick so quickly and, and, and so often that, uh, that they're highly symptomatic. And you know, okay, this person has SARS-CoV-1, uh, for example, uh, and as a result, they're almost too damaging to the host um, be, because it makes, them easy to, it makes it easy to identify who's, who's got the virus and they can be isolated. On the other extreme, you don't want to be completely harmless to your host because as a virus, you have to... Uh, hijack the cellular machinery of the host and you have to create copies of yourself to some extent. So what you really want is to be at a sweet spot where you're making the host so sick by creating copies of yourself, um, but you're not making the host so sick that they get symptomatic right away and are identified and isolated. And the COVID-19 virus seems to have hit this, this spot here where it's sufficiently infective so that people can transmit to others without realizing they're even infected. 
so it's sufficiently harmful to the host to spread itself, but it's not so harmful that uh, it knocks people out right away, which was what which was like SARS in 2003, and that's one reason why we, we were able to control SARS in 2003. Uh, it, it's because it was highly pathogenic, so much so that there were very few asymptomatic carriers who could transmit it unknowingly, unknowingly, uh, and we were able to contain SARS in 2003 very quickly on account of that. So it sounds like there's an evolutionary pressure for viruses to evolve rapidly uh, and mutate, so they hit this sweet spot. Uh, exactly, yeah. Okay, so we should be worried about the future, even when we get rid of this one, if we get rid of this one, but other ones coming down the railroad track then. In other words, one would predict that there'll be more epidemics like this one, given what you've just said about the evolutionary pressure for viruses. We, we should expect a, ref a refining, gradual refining of viruses getting better and better at being very spreadable. Is that right? That's right. And in fact, uh, you know, future pandemics are essentially inevitable unless we change certain things about interactions between humans and animals. And the reason that comes into it is that coronaviruses are very widespread in a wide variety of animal species. They're always circulating, they're evolving, they're doing all kinds of things. And every once in a while, one virus will make it jump into the humans and it will have the peculiar features that it can be transmitted in humans. And that's what happened with, with COVID-19. So because of this continual evolution of viruses in what we call animal reservoirs, especially for influenza and coronaviruses, we can expect future pandemics unless we uh, change aspects of how humans and animals interact, uh, for example, in, in live animal markets. Okay, so are you saying that you kind of like expected this to happen from what you knew before and, and people in your field expected this to happen? Yes, uh, everyone knew it was just a matter of time. Uh, people didn't know it would happen in 2020 uh, or that would be coronavirus, B-type viruses. But uh, as long as there are these interactions, uh, um, yes, these types of pandemic events are inevitable. So are you saying that in your field people warned governments that this was going to happen? Yes, yes, um, exactly. And um, there, in response to this, uh, many agencies such as the World Health Organization prepared pandemic preparedness plans. The CDC has a pandemic preparedness, preparedness plan. And these were implemented to varying degrees in, in different countries. So there was some level of preparation for this, uh, but not enough to prevent the outcome we saw for COVID-19. Why do you think that was? Why do you think, despite your very clear warning right now, uh, governments didn't heed, a lot of governments didn't heed it. And, and did, did some governments heed? W were, were there governments that were exemplary in, in listening to the warnings? So there's, that's a complicated question. And there, there are many ways it, in which our uh, institutions can fail because of different psychological biases. Uh, you know, to give you one example, I think there might have been a bias uh, in some Western countries that, you know, maybe this is a Chinese problem that we don't have to worry about. You know, we have great health care here. It's not going to be a problem here. There are other biases, for example, when the virus first emerged in China, uh, that, you know, this is this is not SARS. I think a lot of your listeners might know the story. The doctor tried to warn the local authorities and, and they shut them down, basically. Um, I, I think my own personal opinion is that it has a lot to do with the fact that it's very hard for us to conceptualize exponential growth. Uh, in other words, one person infects two, two infects four, four becomes eight. If each person infects two people, then after a while, you've got a huge number of cases. And it's hard for us to get our minds around that exponential growth. 
And as a result, if we see a few cases in our community, we say, well, okay, I still have time to do something about it. I'm not going to shut down the economy just yet. But in fact, if, if you wait uh, too long, then exponential growth will explode on you and uh, you'll be in a very bad situation. So I, I think it's a series of, of many different biases and errors that have uh, that, that, that acted here to, uh, to stop containment in, in most countries. Well, when you refer to exponential growth, I would argue that's a mathematical concept. Would you say, uh, and I know I'm, I'm maybe pushing you into, into um, saying something you don't want to say, but, but would you say there was a kind of mathematical failure here in terms of our leaders not really understanding pretty basic mathematics, and that's why they ran into trouble? Yeah, except I would say we're pretty much all subject to that. <laughs> so um, it, it's just, I, I think the human mind is, is uh, perhaps not accustomed to thinking in terms of exponential growth. Uh, um, and so it wasn't just our leaders who failed, but, but it, it, it's just a hard, you know, it's a hard concept to really accept in a lot of ways. But certainly a lot of our leaders did have epidemiologists who understood how this plays out in, in the context of, of, path, of, of pandemics. We were trying to tell their leaders to you know, please shut down the economy as soon as we can, and they didn't listen. So perhaps the failing was uh, not only failing to grasp exponential growth, but, but not listening to the experts. Okay, so let's run over some other key concepts. So something that's become very controversial here in the UK is this notion of the RO, the basic reproduction number. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what that is. And, and the reason why that's become controversial is the lifting of the lockdown and the, the, the re-energizing the economy um, has been seems to have been hinged on this RO number. And a lot of epidemiologists here have argued that too much emphasis has been placed on the RO number. So first of all, what is this number? And, and what are your thoughts about how important is it? So the R0 is the number of secondary infections that each infected person uh, produces throughout the course of their entire infection. So for example, if R0 is two, it means that each case generates two more cases on average. And so that goes back to the idea of, you know, one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, et cetera. And the R0 is kind of like, it's kind of like the body mass index of epidemiology. It, uh, it, it's a useful measure that captures a lot of important information about controllability, but it doesn't capture everything you need to know um, if, you need to, if you want to figure out if you can control the infection or not. Uh, and, and I think um, some of the controversy might stem, stem from that fact. But like I said, it's, it's like the body mass index. It's a useful rule of thumb uh, that gives you a, a quick idea of, of how hard it is to control an infection. If R0 is very high, say it's 10, then 1 becomes 10, 10 becomes 100, 100 becomes 1,000, you're, you're, you're in a very difficult situation. But if it's closer to 1.5 or 2, then it's easier to control as a general rule. And there are some other numbers in some of your papers, this thing called the effective reproduction number, which seems to be different from the basic reproduction number. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the effective reproduction number is the basic reproduction number in the presence of interventions intended to, to slow down transmission. So, uh, so, so the effective reproduction number is what people are monitoring right now. If that number is bigger than one, it means that even in the presence of lockdown, cases are growing exponentially. Uh, and so we're not doing as, as good a job as we could in terms of mitigating the pandemic. But if it's less than one, it means that eventually, if you keep up those restrictions, eventually 
the epidemic will will die out of its own accord. So it's it's important as to whether or not the R effective number is bigger than one or less than one, and it responds to different things that we do to try to control the transmission. That's what I find puzzling. If if what you because it seems to me that if you, the reproduction number is is less than 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 one because of the lockdown then you don't lift the lockdown because it drops below one. Because if you lift the lockdown when it drops below one, it'll go back up again. That's the bit I find a bit puzzling. Exactly. And this is one thing I studied in my models. It's exactly this interplay between the uh, this psychology that, oh, maybe we can relax now because there are fewer cases. And the fact that if you do relax, the cases will come back. So it's, it's called a feedback movement in the field. Uh, and um, I think this is playing out to determine the infection trajectory in model populations. So now that we've gotten the message that we've flattened the curve and people are talking about reopening, the population is getting the idea that, um, okay, maybe things can get, can, 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 back to, can go back to normal now, now that the infection is under control. But uh, that's, that's a situation where sometimes the metaphors we use to convey concepts fail. We talk about first and second waves of COVID. And when people think of waves, they think of it of, of it as like an ocean wave. It's something you just experience. But in fact, these are very peculiar waves. That, that, uh, and so that's where the wave analogy kind of breaks down. We're the ones who make the COVID waves, the first wave, the second wave. Uh, and if we do relax our distancing efforts when R drops below one uh, prematurely, then it will not stay that way. It'll, it will go back above one. So surely this is where individuals and individuals' analysis about their own risk becomes important because a community or a society or a politician may say we're going to lift the lockdown, but individuals can make their own decision about trying to limit their risk. They can, they can take extra precautions over social distancing and wearing a face mask or whatever, and therefore they can, they can in the face of a lifted lockdown, still have, have, a, have a, a, a personal risk that's less that of the community is that right that's exactly right and i think also social norms come into play if you're in a local population where many people wear masks you're more likely to do it and likewise if if people in your neighborhood are maintaining six foot distance you're more likely to do it so it's it's not just the individual perception of risk but also the social norms that dictate behavior and probably explains a large part of the fact that the disease burden is so different across countries it's because the norms around masks and distancing are, are, are so different, too. OK, so it's been fascinating talking to you because we're running out of time a little bit. But I want to now move to vaccinations, because, again, you've written a lot about vaccinations and people are seeming to think about we just got to wait for a vaccine to come along, then it'll all be over. Um, and reading your papers on this, it's a very interesting. First of all, you, you talk about the fact that no vaccine is basically 100 percent effective. I'm a qualified doctor. I didn't realize that. Tell us a bit about the fact that you can vaccinate a population, but still a large number of people or a significant number or a small number who've been vaccinated may still not be effectively vaccinated. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so there could be many reasons why the vaccine is not 100 percent effective. I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, it stems from the fact that vaccines work by harnessing our own immune system. Uh, and so you put a bit of the virus, uh, the dead virus, in our, in our bloodstream, and that stimulates our own natural immune response. So it's very different from a drug in that respect. But the only way it can then work is if your immune system is, is functioning properly. So if you're immunocompromised or if you're elderly and your immune system is not as strong as it used to be, then you will not mount a response to, to vaccination. 
So that's just one reason why the vaccine won't be perfectly effective. Uh, and this has given rise to uh, ideas like cocooning. So, so maybe uh, healthy people with good immune systems should vaccinate to protect uh, people who are immunocompromised, immunocompromised or very elderly who can't benefit from that uh, robust immune response. And um, you've also invoked the notion of game theory and the Nash equilibrium um, over vaccination. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so to take a, an example where everyone is vaccinated and there's perfect immunity to uh, the bug, then there's a sense in which you as a parent deciding to get your child vaccinated. You don't have to get your child vaccinated because the risk is very small. Um, so there's a, so a kind of game theory being about the idea that you make decisions based on decisions that other people are making um, seems to be important. Could you say something about that? Because vaccination requires a decision. Someone has to decide to be vaccinated and how they decide. You, you've been quite interested in it, seems to me, in thinking about that, that decision making process and, and therefore how prevalent vaccination is. Yeah, I think that's uh, a very important factor in decision making in many contexts. Uh, it doesn't require that individuals actively think like a game theorist. It simply requires them to notice that there's not much infection around, and therefore uh, there's less of an incentive to become to come to become vaccinated. Um, and I think this explains uh, sometimes the vaccine refusal or just plain vaccine hesitancy we observe in many populations, uh, where uh, where there's no recent history of infection. Uh, so the UK is a great example of, of how this can play out in practice. Now, the UK has a, a generally successful voluntary policy. In other words, children don't have to be immunized to go to school, as in most of the countries. And uh, most of the time, this has worked pretty well. But there have been a few notable exceptions uh, with measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, uh, pertussis vaccination, uh, where this seems to, to have broken down. And I think part of it is, is this, this uh, feature that uh, if we no longer see infection in the community, we forget what the disease is like, we don't perceive a big risk, and so we don't necessarily get vaccinated as readily as we would otherwise. And again, this doesn't require that people be calculating game theorists. It could just be something as simple as, you know, they're busy, so they're not going to go and get the flu shot, even though they should. Uh, and, and because these vaccine programs are victims of their own success, uh, they reduce the, the infection uh, to very low levels. Um, uh, uh, the infection can come back sometimes. And if infection is rare, that can also be very fertile grounds for scares. Because if you have no measles in your community and someone comes along and says, well, there's this, this small risk associated with the vaccine, then any small risk suddenly looks very large compared to nothing, compared to zero, right? So, so under those conditions, uh, you have very fertile grounds for these vaccine scares. So um, we don't have time to go into it in too much detail, but then you've invoked the notion of this thing called the Nash equilibrium arising out of the prisoner's dilemma game. Which and, and the basic idea here, as I understand it, you must correct me if I've got this wrong, is that people make can make decisions that in the end uh, look like favoring self-interest but ultimately uh, damage the community. Um, could you say something about that, about what this Nash equilibrium is and the prisoner's dilemma game and how it's relevant to things like vaccinations and infections? Right, so the Nash equilibrium assumes that people will respond in a certain way based on what they think what other people will do. So it's the central idea of game theory, which, like it says, is the theory of games. It's the idea 
you know, how should I play my poker hand based on what I think that a person has. The prisoner's dilemma is an outcome where uh, people achieve socially suboptimal outcomes um, because of this, this kind of selfish uh, reaction, this idea that I'm going to maximize my own payoff based on what I think other people will do. And uh, it plays out in vaccination because people take advantage of herd protection. They take advantage of the fact that the infection is rare to avoid having to, to get vaccinated themselves. And I think it's actually also playing out in COVID uh, because individuals, uh, counties, municipalities, countries are, are playing this game. They, they want to, to prevent them. They want to prevent locking down as long as possible. Uh, maybe because of some cognitive bias that it, it won't come here. Uh, uh, for example, or, the, or or that they can handle it, um, uh, to try to maximize their own economic gains for a period of time. Whereas, in fact, if, if we act, you know, very aggressively and very early, we could stop this. We could have stopped this in China, and even when it's trying to spread to other countries, we could have stopped them locally before we wound up in this current situation. So, I, I think um, this national equilibrium and this privilege dilemma uh, is also operating during the COVID pandemic in terms of. Uh, when we decide to lock down. Um, has anything happened with this pandemic that's really surprised you in terms of how things panned out? Because one, one of the things that surprised many historians who, looking back in history, have felt that pandemics have led to negative human behavior. It's been linked, you know, to um, ostracism of certain communities and scapegoating and prejudice against people who were thought to be spreading uh, the virus, but some historians have argued that pandemics have actually led to get to massive human solidarity, that people have looked after each other in surprising ways and made huge sacrifices. So mm -hmm. there's been there's been a sense in which, for example, the lockdown, this, the extent to which the population here in the UK were willing to endure incredible sacrifices for many, many weeks, surprised many people. Um, right at the beginning, many psychologists were predicting that the order to, to remain in lockdown would not be obeyed uh, as much as it really has been. Um, so that was one surprise, for example. I don't know whether that surprised you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Um, but I, I will say it's also, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, even historically. Uh, for example, you might know the famous story about the village of Eam, which heroically quarantined itself uh, from the Black Death to prevent the region, becoming in, the region from becoming infected. So there are also historical examples of that. Um, I suppose I, I was surprised by the extent to which physical distancing was adopted. Um, um, that was the uh, perhaps the most surprising thing about about this pandemic, for, for me anyway. So, um, to final final question, um, do do you have any advice uh, for the public or for doctors when they're thinking about modelling? Because it's kind of in the news a lot. And they're, they're, different results are coming at them, and and we're we're kind of like been told that the epidemiologists are, are in control of the world right now. Um, uh, so, any thoughts about how to help people think about epidemiology and modelling? Because it's a it's an alien world for most people, and yet it's kind of like running the economy. It's running the world. That the mathematical modellers are 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 running the world. People would say. Any thoughts about that? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think their input is definitely influential, but the mind of a decision maker has many inputs, and one of them is the epidemiological evidence. They also have to consider uh, economics, uh, equity. I'm sure many of them are thinking about political issues as well. Um, and so uh, I think it's an overstatement to say it's running the world. 
I certainly think it's influential. It reminds me a little bit of, of climate change science. We have a situation here where, where uh, you know, experts have some opinion uh, uh, about what our, what our actions will do to the world or how they will influence us in turn. Uh, and then we can use that information in different ways. Uh, and that's the kind of a model I use for understanding what's happening in this situation. Um, so uh, uh, so it, it, it seems like, uh, you know, there's evidence here, uh, but in terms of what the decision makers actually do, uh, you know, they can choose to adopt that or not adopt it based on other considerations that, that act as inputs for their decision-making process. Well, it's very interesting you should say that. I would say that some people are thinking that actually climate change has got a better chance now of, of decision makers and politicians paying attention, whereas people before in the, in the, in the climate sciences world were very pessimistic that they would be listened to. And in fact, the shutdown has obviously improved things like emissions and so on dramatically. So oddly enough, the virus may, in a funny kind of long term way, provide an opportunity for us to save ourselves. That may that may pan out, and I I think that's an interesting point because I, I think for many years we've been paralyzed by action on climate change by again this prisoner's dilemma this idea that well you know I can put solar panels on my house but if anyone if everyone else won't do it then then you know how much can it help um, so so this kind of requirement that we all act uh, has disincentivized individual action but in the case of COVID we we've seen this this kind of rapid change uh, practically overnight and perhaps that will show people that, you know, collectively we, we, we can uh, under, undergo a massive project like this for, for, the good of, for the good of the whole population. And so it's possible that this will, um, our example will inspire us to, to act more decisively on, on climate change after this is over. Great. Chris Babs, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating interview. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Raj.